to the responsibility to protect. Word kill. All societies are potentially vulnerable. Possibly crimes. Timely and appropriate action. Welcome to Expert Voices on Atrocity Prevention by the Global Center for the Responsibility to Protect. I'm Jacqueline Streifeld-Hall, Research Director at the Global Center. This podcast features one-on-one conversations with practitioners from the fields of human rights, conflict prevention, and atrocity prevention. These conversations will give us a glimpse of the personal and professional side of how practitioners approach human rights protection and atrocity prevention, allowing us to explore challenges, identify best practices, and share lessons learned on how we can protect populations more effectively. In today's episode, I will be talking with Ambassador Stephen Rapp. Ambassador Rapp is currently a fellow at the U.S. Holocaust Memorial Museum Center for the Prevention of Genocide and a senior fellow at Oxford University. He previously served as a senior trial attorney and chief of prosecutions at the International Criminal Tribunal for Rwanda and as a prosecutor of the Special Court for Sierra Leone. During the administration of President Barack Obama, he served as U.S. Ambassador-at-Large for Global Criminal Justice. Thank you for joining us today, Ambassador Rapp. Very good to be with you. Ambassador, you've had an extensive career in international justice. What initially drew you to working in this field? Well, I think it goes to my own past, you know, sort of an association when I was involved in politics and in my early legal career of always association with the underdog, people that were victimized often by the economy uh, and, and also uh, by crime. I'd been a victim of myself at uh, 21 of a particularly vicious uh, crime, which I've been lucky to, to survive. Uh, uh, nonetheless, uh, I spent most of my early career as a defense attorney, sometimes representing people who were a little like the folks that had uh, victimized me. Um, but, you know, s- strongly believed in, in, in that situation and using the tools of the law to, to, to achieve justice. Um, I was fascinated by what what had happened after World War II and read a lot about it, uh, particularly the Nuremberg trials and uh, holding uh, Nazis to account. And and later uh, uh, during the Cold War, where sometimes the U.S. was, I thought, on the wrong side, uh, uh, associating with uh, dictators that were committing uh, torture and genocide in Guatemala and so-called dirty war of, of mass uh, torture and murder. Uh, and disappearance in, in Argentina, uh, really uh, wanted to see uh, uh, prosecutions prevail. Um, but then uh, in 1993, I was fortunate to be appointed because of my public work uh, as, uh, as, as the United States attorney, as the chief federal prosecutor in my um, relatively uh, small district from a population uh, perspective, about a million and a half people of northern Iowa, um, half the state, uh, and uh, was uh, in charge of, of federal law enforcement, uh, frankly, in an area where we had very few uh, federal uh, investigative agencies. So it involved uh, reaching out and, and, and finding evidence ourselves, uh, working with the local enforcement authorities, particularly working with victims' organizations. And uh, it, it happened at a time when uh, the level of violent crime across the country was much, frankly, higher than it's been recently, though it may be going up again and uh, really wanted to involve the office in every way I could in, in, in protecting uh, communities from, from those that were predatory, whether those were uh, gangs uh, committing vicious and selfish acts uh, uh, for their own uh, uh, glory, so to speak, uh, or, or, or riches, uh, or whether it was uh, even uh, powerful corporations that were exploiting uh, people or polluting uh, uh, the groundwater. 
So that was uh, very much the cause, but you know, saw the law as, as something that uh, sitting in the prosecutor's seat could be used and not to, to sort of vindicate authority to show the government's all powerful uh, and everyone has to bow down, but, but rather as a, as a tool to, uh, you know, even the odds uh, uh, in a way to, uh, uh, to uh, you know, represent those who were victimized. And, uh, and to use the law against those who were powerful economically or because of their willingness to turn to acts of vicious violence and, uh, and, and bring the law uh, to bear in those situations. Then in the mid-90s, I saw uh, the, uh, what was occurring internationally with the end of the Cold War and with the horrible crimes in the former Yugoslavia and Rwanda that uh, the idea at Nuremberg was, was being resurrected uh, through the UN Security Council and that uh, justice was being sought at an international level uh, on behalf of the victims of those horrendous crimes. Uh, and of course, we'd gone a long time after Nuremberg with, without any possibility of justice. And I was very excited about that and, and frankly uh, sought out opportunities to go assist uh, and, and indeed was, was even solicited by Washington to see if any of my assistants would like to go, for instance, to The Hague. Uh, and I found none who were, but I said, I am. And they said, no, you can't go. You're, uh, you, you know, you're the boss. You need to stay in Cedar Rapids and Sioux City, Iowa and, and tend to the store. Um, but I continued to be actively interested in that. And so in, in 99, I began the process of actually uh, pursuing uh, the idea of, of moving to a tribunal uh, when my term ended and, uh, and looking um, to, to be uh, an international prosecutor, not to be a boss, uh, uh, maybe not, certainly not initially, but to, uh, but to be a team leader who would work uh, on the ground uh, with the victims and the survivors, uh, develop the kind of evidence that I developed in, in cases in federal law enforcement uh, that brought in uh, insiders, uh, uh, still insisted that they be held accountable, but uh, uh, recognized their cooperation through uh, uh, and, and the fact that they'd already engaged in rehabilitation. Uh, uh, through uh, through by protecting them and 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 by perhaps providing a, even a concession and sentencing if we could get true uh, information that could be corroborated and uh, and and prosecute and and bring to justice the people that were the most powerful the, the true authors of these crimes not the sometimes children that are recruited to commit the crimes but those who make them happen for uh, for their own selfish ends so uh, sought out that opportunity and uh, went to. Uh, uh, went to Washington, uh, visited in the office that I never imagined that I would someday lead, uh, visited the Office of War Crimes Issues, uh, met with one of the assistants, uh, Pierre Prosper, who was then working for the first ambassador at large uh, in this area, David Sheffer, and uh, Pierre, had, uh, a California prosecutor, had gone to the Arusha Tribunal to prosecute the Rwanda genocide, um, was a junior assistant uh, uh, assistant trial attorney in P3, uh, but because of the nature of, of, of Arusha, uh, but uh, was called in to be part of the team in the first trial on the crime of genocide. And uh, by the time that trial ended, all the people above him either had been fired or left, and he was actually the person that uh, in court uh, um, carried uh, the day and, and obtained the first conviction in the history of the world for the, for the crime of genocide. Uh, it wasn't possible as an American even then to be promoted, so he went back to Washington and was working for, for David Sheffer, uh, would eventually be appointed ambassador himself under President Bush. But uh, his advice was, uh, don't go to The Hague, go to, go to Arusha, uh, go to the uh, Rwanda Tribunal. And I followed his advice and found a vacancy, uh, a P5 trial attorney 
senior trial attorney position, um, asked for the help of the office and in, in making sure that I was considered and uh, was fortunate to be interviewed in January of 2001 and, and to get the offer in April. And as soon as I had it, I, I resigned as, as U.S. attorney and left the office on the 18th of May 2001. And within four days, uh, was was in Arusha, uh, Tanzania. Um, and uh, was immediately put in charge of the media trial, a trial that had begun seven months earlier, but in which the two leaders had either left, fired or been let go, and it needed a leader uh, to, to, to steer the trial to, uh, to success, and that became uh, my uh, intense immersion in, in international criminal law beginning in May of 2001. Wow, that's really a relentless pursuit of being involved in international criminal justice. Um, I'd always been curious about how you made that jump from uh, being a prosecutor in Iowa to international justice. So that's fascinating. Since you've mentioned the the media trial, um, I know a lot of historical firsts for international justice were achieved um, through both the ICTR and during your time on the special court for Sierra Leone. Were there any particular highlights that emerged from your experience prosecuting cases in those situations? Well, there, there were a lot of highlights. There were also lots of challenges. Certainly the, the media trial and getting things organized and, 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 and putting it together was, the, I, I think, the hardest and the most challenging job uh, that, that I've ever had. Uh, um, you know, when I arrived, uh, you know, I sort of thought maybe the case had been prepared and we were in the process of going through a script that it was in pretrial brief and, and discovered that we hadn't done much uh, uh, to prove the elements in the, in the case. Uh, the evidence um, was hardly in perfect shape. I mean, uh, we had what we thought were about 300 hours of broadcasts of RTLM radio. Uh, we had the uh, issues of Kangura. There were about 70 of them. Um, and... Uh, uh, we, we had those in evidence, uh, but uh, very few of them had even been translated into either English or, or French. They were in the native language of, of Kinyarwanda, of, of Rwanda. I think about 50 of the 300 had been translated into one of the two languages, only maybe about a dozen of the broadcasts had been translated into both. Uh, so we really didn't know what our evidence said. <laughs> and then, uh, uh, and then uh, the Kangura, uh, indeed, uh, a very, I think, five issues had been fully translated out of the 70. So we had that intense challenge. And of course, uh, even if we proved uh, that, uh, that the broadcast, for instance, had been inciting, which of course involved complex issues of interpretation uh, of the, the language, and particularly the broadcast, was quite often coded and related to Rwandan proverbs and, uh, and even things that had supposedly been said that reported in the international media, one could not find uh, in the broadcast material that we, that we had. And so, uh, you know, proving that it was inciting language was also a challenge. And, and the experts that were going to help us on that had, uh, had had a blow up with the tribunal and had refused to work with us. And then, uh, 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 and then we had the question of proving, particularly as to the radio, that the two men that we had on trial, uh, uh, Ferdinand Nahimana and John Bosco Baragwiza uh, were actually responsible for the station at the time when all these uh, allegedly nasty broadcasts were made. They'd certainly been involved in its formation a year earlier, uh, but we weren't trying them for actually being on the broadcast speaking. Uh, we, were probably, we were essentially uh, saying that they were in control of the station. 
and proving that they were in control during the period of the genocide uh, was, was also intensely challenging. Uh, it was a little less of a problem with the, with the newspaper, uh, but there the newspaper had not published during the genocide, and the crime that we were seeking to prosecute was direct and public incitement to genocide. So it was a, was a, it was a uh, and we were limited to 1994 uh, under, the, uh, under the statute that limited us to crimes committed in 94. And some of the nastiest things in Kangura, like the Ten Commandments had been published, uh, the Bahutu were published three years earlier. And, uh, and even then, uh, if something's broadcast uh, or published a month or two before the crime, is that direct incitement <laughs> to the genocide? Is it like in America? People would say, well, no, that's not a direct causation to act. Uh, you can't say that's protected. Uh, so, you know, we had, we had enormous <laughs> challenges and uh, we had barely scratched the surface in terms of, of proving any of that when, when, when I arrived. So, uh, and, you know, you had the challenges of, uh, of the UN running a court and, UN can take uh, you know a year and a half or two years to fill a vacancy. Uh, you know the uh, we were in Arusha where we did have uh, generators to to continue with our power when uh, when the public power went down, which was every day. Uh, but we you know didn't have enough uh, paper for the <laughs> copy machines or toner, and we were quite often rushing out to uh, to local shops and and producing our document copies that uh, that we needed. Uh, so, you know, it was one of those things where, uh, and nothing would happen unless you made it happen, and uh, no paper would move from one office to another unless you personally carried the paper. So you had all of that at the same time that you had the, the, the need to do something that had never been done uh, in history before, which is uh, to convict people involved in the media uh, with the crime of direct and public incitement to genocide. Given the challenges you've just highlighted, what were some of the, the highlights of the tribunal and, and how did you overcome these challenges? Well, there were highlights and, and there were great things. And it was the, certainly my experience in the two international courts uh, uh, in, in which I worked were the, the most, uh, frankly, significant things of my, of my life. And uh, uh, it involved eventually being able to put on the evidence, eventually being able to incorporate everybody in the team uh, uh, into into part of, of that effort uh, um, in in getting uh, uh, at least uh, enough of the broadcast uh, translated, uh, uh, getting the sort of uh, local experts uh, to testify uh, about the, the the you know the proverbs uh, uh, and and the meaning of those particular uh, uh, expressions of being able finally uh, uh, to to present uh, in court. Uh, uh, the the audio of the of the absolutely crazy uh, uh, talk in the background in, in Kenya Rwanda at the same time that we strolled uh, uh, the uh, the translation and and in English uh, and and in French uh, and and uh, and and then to have testimony as well where people were on the receiving end uh, of those broadcasts were happening and then they were immediately uh, attacked by the Interahamwe in these places where were thousands. Uh, uh, were, were hacked to death and were, you know, a few survivors died, on, you know, under piles of corpses of members of, of their own family. And, and, and we were able to, to put the case together and, and indeed uh, um, with some assistance of international experts like uh, Alison DeForge uh, uh, show that, uh, uh, you know, that the, uh, that the defendants uh, continued to have uh, uh, significant control uh, over the station, over the radio during the course of, of these of these messages, and 
and obtained the first convictions uh, in history in December of 2003 for direct and public incitement. Uh, um, I remember well that day in December uh, of 03 when, when, when the judges uh, uh, read out uh, uh, their decision uh, led by the South African and uh, Navi Pile, who was president of the tribunal and later an ICC judge, uh, and, and, and found these men responsible for, for, for genocide and, and, and crimes against humanity and effectively sentenced them to, uh, to life sentences uh, at, at, the, uh, uh, at the trial level. Um, and I remember talking to survivors uh, afterwards, uh, who, you know, um, and of course I was apologetic in the sense that we weren't able to uh, to do everything that we had hoped to do or obtain convictions on on every part of uh, of our case. And uh, but frankly, they were they were overjoyed. I remember one saying, you know, uh, when when he was in Rwanda, the men that we were trying were were, were too high up ever. Uh, he could never be in the same room with them. Uh, they were they were so powerful and, and above and, and all controlling of, of, of that society. And, uh, yet they unleashed these messages that had caused the death of, of, of his entire family and uh, saying to me that day, you know, this was the, the greatest moment uh, in, in his life uh, to see them being stood before the whole world and, uh, and, and convicted of, of responsibility for uh, uh, for incitement that, that caused the death of his family and, and hundreds of thousands of other uh, innocent uh, victims. Um, in, uh, in, in Sierra Leone, which is a different kind of court, which I was appointed to as chief prosecutor uh, in January or took the position up in January of 2007, we had a, a different kind of court in the sense that it wasn't a UN-created court with all international staff. It was about 60% national staff and it uh, involved appointments uh, of both uh, national and international people to offices like mine. I was the international prosecutor appointed by the UN Secretary General Kofi Annan. My deputy was appointed by the president of the country. Uh, and, and I thought uh, because of that and because we were doing our work uh, not uh, 500 miles away, which was the situation in Arusha, Tanzania, where the Rwanda Tribunal was headquartered 500 miles east of Kigali, Rwanda, uh, the center of the crimes. Uh, we were doing the work uh, in Freetown in Sierra Leone, uh, uh, the very city that had been attacked in which uh, thousands of people had been killed and, and raped and, and children had been abducted uh, uh, when that city was taken by the brutal rebels of the RUF in January of 99. And we could look out the window and, and, and see houses uh, still destroyed. Uh, from uh, from those crimes and, and, and meet with the, the survivors uh, in the street and, and in our outreach program where we travel the country to describe the work of, of, of the court. Uh, but it was, um, you know, extremely gratifying as well to, to finally obtain uh, convictions uh, for crimes that, had, uh, that people thought would never uh, have, uh, and, and against individuals that uh, they thought were absolutely beyond uh, the capacity of of their system of justice to, to ever reach. Um, the most exciting, of course, was the fact that we were able to try the president of the country next door who had, uh, um, who had alleged and we alleged and we eventually proved uh, was responsible uh, through his support uh, of the RUF uh, so that he could gain control of the diamonds in, in Sierra Leone, uh, responsible for their, their campaign of of amputations and rape and, and murder that uh, 
victimized uh, hundreds of, of, of thousands. Uh, we had to try that case in uh, uh, in, Arusha, in in the Hague because the local uh, leaders and the leaders in the countries in the region thought that trial in Freetown, where we had tried the other uh, three big trials of, of the leaders of each of the of the of the groups that had been involved in the uh, in the mass killing and the mass atrocities, uh, we needed to try that one in the Hague. But we did everything that we could to uh, to get back the message uh, and to uh, and to make sure that the people of Sierra Leone knew what was happening and that uh, and that screenings of the videos was held all over the country, uh, you know, using generators and broadcasting community halls uh, and schools uh, um, and open spaces uh, uh, during the evenings when you could do a projector um, and, and, and show what, what was happening in the, in the court. But, um, you know, I'm reminded of uh, what people described to me as, as the arrival of, of Charles Taylor at the court in March of, uh, of 2006, which was frankly before my arrival and the, and the day when, when, when it was possible to bring him from arrest in Nigeria, something the court had been pushing for uh, through Liberia and to, uh, uh, to bring him to the court uh, in March of, of 2006 when thousands of people stood on the, on the rooftops as the helicopter uh, uh, settled into the court grounds and its detention center. And, uh, and people always told me that was the day that they never thought uh, they, would, they would see. Uh, and indeed, uh, in the end, with the evidence that we were able to put together in the trial, uh, in uh, in the Hague, we were able to convict Taylor and send him to prison for for fifty years, as we were able to convict each of the individuals uh, that we that we charged. Um, it was uh, you know uh, the kind of thing that uh, one can only dream of in terms of the result of the justice process. I've been back to Sierra Leone several times since. Uh, there last, just as Ebola was uh, was 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 beginning to take hold in the country, thank thankfully that has has passed. Um, but I remember uh, people telling me that that whatever the problems of the country, uh, they've gone through several elections and uh, and uh, there have been no lethal violence uh, uh, and power had changed uh, uh, basically because the lesson had been taught: uh, if you commit these crimes to gain power, um, you know you're you're going to face justice. And, and and so I think we did, uh, in effect. Uh, in an imperfect process that prosecuted only a handful of individuals in a country that still remains challenged in many ways, uh, show that justice uh, could uh, protect people uh, going after the crimes in the past, could protect people in the future, be part of R2P, uh, uh, part of sort of a pillar three, uh, you know, sub one, you know, which is the use of, of, of justice in a, in a very tough way. Um, sometime in that case, possible, so I guess, sort of pillar two in cooperation with the country and regional authorities in, in other situations like former Yugoslavia, you know, a really something that was imposed by the UN. But you can in that through those kinds of, of methods uh, uh, protect people. And um, and that's, you know, I've been spending my time uh, since leaving both courts uh, uh, trying to achieve some measure of the same kind of accountability for past and ongoing violations uh, uh, in the hope that that will uh, deter violations in the future. It's really incredible to hear how these trials really impact the populations um, who were affected by the crimes, even you know when the outcome is years after the crimes were perpetrated. 
Your work has significantly strengthened the perception that criminal justice plays a key role in the prevention of mass atrocities. And as you mentioned, it's it's important to pillar one of R2P. Uh, based on your experience, how have criminal justice mechanisms functioned as a deterrent to perpetrators of mass atrocities? Well, it's it, it's a question of uh, of risk uh, uh, and reward. Uh, um, you know, uh, understand uh, no one quite knows uh, uh, what works uh, in, in in criminal justice, and 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 people can debate the concept of deterrence. Uh, you know, I, I certainly see in, at the national level if you uh, if you begin to prosecute certain companies for doing uh, uh, for polluting, uh, uh, other companies will stop doing it. Uh, and uh, you can you can take action about certain kinds of crime, uh, you know, healthcare fraud, other things that involve uh, people that are making calculations of risks. And if there's some risk of uh, of, of, of punishment of prosecution, uh, that will have an effect. Uh, you know, in in the case of uh, street crime or other kinds of uh, offending um, uh, offenses, uh, it it may be a little less clear. Uh, and, and one needs a, a strategic approach that deals with different aspects of it. But, you know, my own uh, view of international crime, of mass atrocities, uh, uh, is that these are very much crimes that are planned and prepared and, and uh, uh, the, the, the killers are, are trained and, and supplied and, and deployed uh, by leaders who are using uh, uh, the commission of, of, of crimes against the innocent as, as part of their strategy for uh, maintaining or, or gaining power and, and the wealth and authority that goes with it. Uh, and uh, you can see that uh, in, in many of these situations where the, where the authors of these crimes are not uh, sociopaths. Uh, they're very calculated, uh, perhaps narcissistic, but uh, people who calculate uh, uh, advantages. And, and, and sometimes these things work. Sometimes committing atrocities invites you into a peace process uh, uh, and then you get uh, power sharing and when you finally get all power, uh, you continue these crimes. And unless we send a clear message that there are going to be consequences, that there are not going to be benefits uh, to commission of atrocities, uh, we'll get more of them. Uh, the challenges that we have now is uh, where we do have these historic examples where it was eventually possible to achieve justice, most recently uh, with the finalization of the Mladic case, though he was on the run for 16 years before he was brought to, to trial. And it's been 10 years now through that whole process uh, of, of preparation, trial and appeal where that case has been concluded, uh, you know, 26 years after the crimes. Uh, but that certainly sends a very, very powerful message. Uh, and um, and that's, that's an important one. Uh, and it's not just a message to the former Yugoslavia. But in other places, say Syria, uh, the leader uh, thinks himself protected uh, by the Russians. They vetoed the referral of that case to the ICC, uh, vetoed almost everything else that's come up in the Security Council that would put any, any measure of accountability on Syria. Um, and then, uh, and of course, he's not part, Assad's not part of international uh, 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 courts uh, such as the ICC, and so in a situation like that, how do you how do you achieve justice? And and frankly, as a result of the perception that he can get away with it, you know, we see uh, crimes that were committed in the past, even in World War, even uh, even crimes that uh, were I should say uh, uh, acts that were prohibited in the past, like the use of poison gas uh, or uh, um, you know. Uh, the prohibition on attacks on hospitals or medical personnel, 
or uh, you know prohibitions on forcible disappearance. Uh, uh, those norms have largely been well established. The hospitals for 150 years, the poison gas almost from the end of the World War One. Um, you know the, the forcible disappearances really from the end of the Dirty War in Latin America. We haven't seen a lot of those crimes, and here they're all being committed in, in Syria in a, in a massive way uh, because of the perception that you can get away with it. So that's that's the difficulty we have in, in so many of these situations. And Myanmar, in which the ICC uh, has a small part to play, it found uh, because of forced deportation uh, into a state party, Bangladesh. Uh, but a lot of the other situations uh, in the world are are beyond the reach of, of the ICC or, or of the UN because of a, um, non-membership or because of the protection of a veto-wielding member of the Security Council. So there we have to find uh, other ways uh, to, to achieve accountability. And, and a key part of that is, is in my view, uh, developing the evidence uh, uh, in, a, in a highly professional way and then working to, to find a way to, to bring that evidence uh, to bear um, where you do have an opportunity to go into court. And uh, most prominently in the case of Syria, that's been in third countries, uh, particularly countries that have welcomed a great many refugees, where they really have an interest in justice and can use the concept of universal justice and, and their nexus uh, to uh, uh, two witnesses uh, and, and often to the, pre the presence of a perpetrator, foreign national, uh, in their midst uh, to, to achieve justice uh, in, in uh, uh, in national courts. Of course, that's limited. Uh, there are only a certain number of cases that are going to be made that way, and they may not be the, the highest number of, of, of actors. Uh, but that's that's often the name of the game um, right now. Not that there aren't other avenues uh, for relief. Obviously, in Myanmar, we have the case uh, brought in the International Court of Justice uh, uh, by a good friend of mine, um, then Minister of, of Justice, uh, Ba Tamadu, who is a uh, a junior trial attorney when I was in Arusha, a very talented one who rose after I was there to a prominent position in the tribunal and then went home after his dictator from the dictator of his country for 22 years was overthrown. He was invited back by the president to become minister of justice. Uh, but then um, when, the, when the horrible clearance operations uh, uh, happened in Myanmar, not the, the horrendous crimes for a long period of time, but the but the operations in which the Tatmadaw, the, the military, um, you know, committed mass uh, uh, killings and burnings and rapes and, and drove 800,000 uh, Rohingya men, women and children over the border into Bangladesh in, in August and September of 2017. He, he took up a role within the Islamic countries. Gambia is one of the smallest, but certainly a member uh, to become the sort of chair of their working group on this subject in the Islamic conference. And then eventually to arrange uh, for uh, his own country, Gambia, to take uh, uh, Myanmar to the International Court of Justice on the Genocide Convention uh, and to get the support of the Islamic countries. Many of them don't agree about anything else. Uh, Iran, Saudi Arabia in the same place uh, uh, to support, uh, you know, hiring the firm and building the evidence and using what had been obtained in UN inquiries uh, and by, uh, by civil society uh, to build this case and take a uh, uh, take it to The Hague, not for criminal liability or responsibility, but for the state responsibility. And we remember what, what happened in, in December of 2019 when uh, the government led by Aung San Suu Kyi actually came to defend uh, their military um, and the, in the International Court of Justice the following month uh, by a, 
a unanimous vote, uh, you know, found that there was jurisdiction, even though Gambia was a long ways away from, from, from Myanmar, because uh, this is an obligation of all the world under the Genocide Convention, and, and other countries from distant, faraway places can bring a, a state to the ICJ. And they found, uh, at least preliminarily, there was in, uh, jurisdiction uh, and that there was cause to issue provisional measures uh, requiring action by the government to prevent uh, uh, the to prevent genocide, certainly, uh, or, the, or the reoccurrence of genocide. Uh, of course, we've since had the overthrow of, of the government and the military who gotten away with crimes in the past, committing even worse ones now. But that case continues. So, I mean, these are examples of, you know, where it's possible to uh, to, to use evidence and uh, obtain some level of accountability, though not yet sufficient accountability to change uh, uh, the, the conduct, but certainly uh, message to other countries who don't want to, and other leaders who don't want to be similarly uh, international pariahs uh, uh, through, 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 through their action. I would note that it goes beyond judicial means uh, to things like global Magnitsky sanctions, uh, the ability of states uh, or groups of states to put into effect uh, sanctions against uh, human rights uh, uh, abusers uh, and violators, um, and then uh, and then potentially even prosecute those that continue to aid those 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 individuals. And so, uh, and even though that's not perfect and doesn't include all states with those sanctions, uh, they can be very very powerful tools. All of these things, however, require the uh, the development of strong evidence, and uh, and just because one has uh, somebody has a horrible reputation or is blamed uh, uh, um, by popular media for, for certain crimes, uh, that's not enough. And uh, and so most of my work these days involves uh, those efforts to strengthen documentation within the UN. But I should note that whatever the UN is doing, uh, it may not be able to go into. Uh, into these conflict zones because of security reasons or because of a resistance of the government uh, who may be implicated in the crimes. Uh, and it requires the work with civil society, uh, building the evidence uh, according to, to a high standard and uh, the UN then playing a role through these new mechanisms in, uh, in vetting that evidence and corroborating it and, uh, and, uh, and, and building files. And so uh, this is all part of that process of achieving accountability in places where we don't have the options that uh, we had in the former Yugoslavia, Rwanda, or Sierra Leone. Thanks. We, we've definitely are witnessing a moment in which there are um, a multitude of investigative mechanisms being developed for atrocity situations, whether it be the commissions of inquiry for countries like Syria, um, there was a commission of inquiry for Burundi, the fact-finding mission for Myanmar, a fact-finding mission for Venezuela, um, as well as these sort of new innovative mechanisms for preparing files for criminal prosecutions, including the IIIM for Syria, the investigative mechanism for Myanmar. Um, given the success of the UN-mandated special tribunals, um, why do you think there's been this shift towards more investigative mechanisms over tribunals? And what do you think the value of those mechanisms is? Well, let me, let me just uh, put it back on a personal level. I mean, I was uh, under President Obama and under Secretary Clinton and under Secretary Kerry, a U.S. ambassador at large, uh, 
after six years on an office that we called War Crimes Issues and then retitled halfway through uh, the Office of Global Criminal Justice. And, and that office had been established essentially to work with international tribunals, recognizing that uh, uh, just because they uh, uh, had a mandate didn't mean that they were going to get any evidence uh, without state assistance. And uh, and they were certainly going to be able to get any arrest without state assistance in uh, in, in one developing the information about where the individual might be located and then uh, and then pressuring uh, sometimes reluctant states to assist in that process um, but you know where I probably went to the uh, to the Hague uh, during the course of my uh, my six-year tenure I probably went there uh, 35 or 40 times and I was busy traveling traveled more than 1200 days during those six years uh, but uh, but increasingly went to Geneva as well. Uh, and, 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 and to the Human Rights Council. And that was because uh, the Security Council, uh, which had established the ad hoc tribunals and it called into, into, into creation the Sierra Leone Court, uh, authorized the negotiation that, that led to its creation, and had referred uh, Darfur and Libya uh, to the ICC through the Security Council. The Security Council was blocked. And uh, if you're going to get any kind of accountability, uh, you had to go to a, a, a well, multilateral accountability, you had to go to a body where there was no veto. Uh, and, and, and that was possible and to do in Syria. And as you said, in, in, in other situations like Myanmar, Venezuela, and now Belarus, uh, um, you know, probably about a dozen of these places. And, and uh, understand that was uh, done under a human rights law mandate and not under a criminal law mandate or by a human rights body, I should say that doesn't normally deal with criminal law mandates, though they would put criminal law-like language uh, into, uh, into the, the responsibilities of these, of these commissions. And so um, that uh, became a, a one way in which you could obtain some kind of global accountability. Now, of course, the main thing that, that these uh, commissions produce are reports, uh, uh, which are limited to 23 pages under UN rules. So they can include uh, very voluminous uh, supplements and appendices. Um, and they may get attention for a day or two after they're published, but that's, they're not sufficient uh, to, uh, to get, uh, you know, get criminal justice cases going, uh, even though they do uh, sometimes um, make determinations that the violations are crimes and, and uh, quite often uh, uh, prepare lists of suspects, uh, in a couple cases published in the reports, uh, but usually delivered confidentially to the high commissioner. Uh, so uh, this is this is the uh, not ideal, uh, but it's the the way that it's been possible to obtain a more neutral process through a multilateral body of uh, uh, to to find the facts and develop evidence. But uh, as as I note, uh, as I said earlier, it, it needs to also involve people working with these bodies to develop the evidence in the field because they hardly ever have access to the scene of the crime and that's usually denied by complicit governments and so they need uh, uh, well-produced evidence open source material but also written statements and uh, as, as i've done in the course of chairing a group called Sija, uh, uh, we brought more than a million pages of documents out of syria uh, security documents that were uh, found or frankly abandoned in various security centers uh, in towns that were lost at least at one time by the government. And, uh, and that material the siege brought out, uh, which has gone directly to cases like the prosecution in Germany and, and the indictments in France and, and elsewhere, 
uh, has also been fully shared with this mechanism that was established on, on Syria um, that takes the step, takes this up a step from commissions that make reports uh, to actually pulling together files and building dossiers, essentially like an office of the prosecutor, but an office of the prosecutor without yet a specific court to go to. Um, and I think that's a, that's a good model, <laughs> imperfect. I'd much prefer it if we could then, let's go ahead and make a tribunal. Uh, and I, there, there's some ideas for, for doing that, but they're, they're complicated because they would, uh, they'd have to happen without the Security Council and often without the consent of the territorial state. So putting a tribunal together under those circumstances is, uh, is, would, would, would be challenging. That may be the next thing that we, we look at in which states pool their jurisdiction uh, to try these, uh, these cases uh, to the extent that they can get their hands on perpetrators. But um, that's, that's, that's the next step. But, uh, you know, I noted that I came from Iowa. I was famous for the field of dreams, uh, you know, where the theme was, if you build it, they will come. And I'm a case builder. And if you build cases, uh, you know, I think eventually justice comes. I mean, you, uh, you present evidence that's so strong, so compelling. Uh, uh, if you can find a jurisdictional avenue, uh, you can get uh, that evidence heard and, and, and prosecutors and authorities are frankly thrilled to see it because they've got a lot of situations where they don't have such evidence. So uh, it's an imperfect process, but it's the one uh, uh, that we have and, and the one that we may be dealing with in the future. And so it won't be a world in which we can rely on, on, on the UN Security Council. Uh, and it won't be one where we can necessarily rely on, uh, on uh, all states. Uh, we have to rely on those states that are committed, a coalition of the committed, uh, to achieve uh, uh, to achieve justice, and uh, that's certainly what I'll be spending the rest of my the rest of my life uh, working on, hoping to achieve through this process uh, something like we achieved in, in in Rwanda and and Sierra Leone or the former Yugoslavia, and, and the process sending a message to the perpetrators of mass atrocities, genocide, war crimes, crimes against humanity, uh, that. Uh, if, if they do the crime, uh, they will face consequences. And, and because of, uh, of, of making that a credible message uh, through justice, um, we can, in fact, protect people uh, from, these, from these atrocities. Um, given the, the challenges with the Security Council that you've mentioned, uh, what can states or, you know, particularly this community of committed states do to prioritize the pursuit of justice and accountability and make bringing an end to impunity less politically charged? Um, kind of what is, what is your dream for the future of international justice at this point? Well, it, it, it really involves the development of an, of an ecosystem. <laughs> You're not going to be able to, uh, uh, to fix it in, in one particular place, but, uh, uh it involves, uh, states and, and their development, uh, agencies, uh, but also states in, in, in the region uh, uh, in terms of, of, of how they orient their priorities uh, uh, to, to making um, an environment where, uh, where civil society organizations are encouraged, supported, protected, uh, human rights defenders are, are protected and encouraged uh, and, and supported uh, in developing uh, evidence of these crimes in, in, in a proper way. Uh, and then um, and, and, and and, and that requires states making an investment, and and a, and, a, and not a not a, a on again off again kind of a, a kind of investment, but a understanding that that's that's an ongoing need. 
no matter what, uh, no matter where the cases may eventually go. And, and then it involves a state supporting uh, multilateral mandates to the extent that they're, that they're possible in bodies uh, like the Human Rights uh, Council. And we see it even going beyond that uh, where the African uh, uh, Commission for uh, uh, Human and People's Rights is, is uh, just established a commission of inquiry for the crimes in Tigray in, in Northern Ethiopia. Um, we'll see if they get the resources that they need to, to do that. So it's not just at, uh, at the level of, of, of the UN. So, uh, you know, we, states need to then support and make sure that they have the right expertise, the right investigators uh, to be able to, to, to do that job and that, uh, and that the people that assist them and provide the evidence uh, are protected and that the evidence is, is protected. And then, uh, and then, uh, and then as well, uh, governments need to support efforts of national war crimes units uh, uh, through organizations like the Genocide Network, which pulls together all European countries and, and, and five uh, countries outside the EU, including the U.S., uh, in, as observers in, in coordination uh, of, of, of prosecution efforts. So I, ideally, uh, um, you know, uh, having the benefit of, of, of mechanisms like the Syria one uh, and, and the Myanmar one that have now been established uh, uh, either by the Human Rights Council or, or the General Assembly. Uh, but uh, whether we have those or not, uh, it, it's, it's going to be a matter of, you know, one, making sure that the evidence is gathered and, and that the witnesses and evidence is uh, properly, uh, properly secured and protected. Uh, and then that, uh, that avenues are, 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 are opened uh, for justice uh, in terms of the statutory language and in terms of, the, uh, of, of having um, uh, the, right, uh, the right kind of investigation and prosecution units. Um, and then to the extent we can do that collectively between states with joint investigative teams, like the one that worked on MH17 in Ukraine, the shoot down, uh, which involved five countries and a prosecution in the end in, in, in the Netherlands, uh, th those kinds of efforts need to be encouraged. So that's where I, I see the future uh, going as much as uh, we'd like to return to where we were with the resolutions that passed the Security Council, as much as one might dream of a more universal ICC. Um, I'm, I'm realistic enough to know that, uh, uh, given the nature of our world, uh, that may not be the that may not be what in the cards. So we have to achieve the the, the next best thing. And, and to be frank, uh, um, with many actors uh, uh, moving in this area and with the proper support, uh, it, it can be greater uh, in terms of its impact than than a single uh, international court with. Uh, with a limited ability to try with a handful of cases, so so I'm not I'm not an opt I'm not a pessimist in this. Am I an optimist? Yes, I guess uh, you know. Show me a glass that's damp, and I'll tell you it's half full. But uh, this glass is uh, is filling, and it's filling uh, from the ground up uh, in a way. Uh, with the civil society organizations is keep to it, not the top down security council or or, or great powers uh, making it happen. But uh, but it, 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 everyone has to. Everyone who's committed to R2P and to the concepts of atrocity prevention and protecting uh, the weak from the powerful um, needs to, uh, uh, to contribute uh, in, in whatever way they can. Thank you for joining us for this episode of Expert Voices on Atrocity Prevention. If you'd like more information about the Global Center's work on R2P, mass atrocity prevention, or populations at risk of mass atrocities, visit our website at globalr2p.org and connect with us on Twitter and Facebook at GCR2P.